Okay, hi, I'm Jace. I'm part of the pastoral team, for those of you that haven't met me before. Um, I just wanted to reiterate, um, fill out the RSVP on that Connect card for that newcomer's lunch. So if you are wondering if you wanna, how to affirm, do that, do that, tear that thing off. Um, one more announcement before we begin. I just wanna announce, um, uh, so last spring, actually, let me start over. Uh, in addition to this, I'm also a, a professor at Warner Pacific University, a Bible professor. And um, it's like a dream job, but unfortunately, the one part that's kind of a nightmare is the collegiate system in America is like, I don't know if it's alive and working or not. So sometimes I have a job and sometimes I don't. Um, right now, I don't, some, I don't have a job right now, but maybe some, next semester I will. What we figured out, though, is that... Um, when I offered to teach one of my classes here at the church just for like audit level um, tuition, 30 people showed up and went for 14 weeks last semester. So some of you were in that group, which was so cool. So that was great. It was mutual, mutually beneficial, I think, I hope. I had a ton of fun. So we're doing that again. Um, in a couple weeks, we're doing another class. Um, this one's a little bit nerdier, but the thing is, is if you took the class, you know that it doesn't matter what we're studying. Once you start tracking a theme from Genesis all the way through, you start, the fruition is so good. You start to see what, how the Bible was designed, how it was written, and what, how you're supposed to read it. So this is a larger, this is like a subcategory to the larger class I teach, which is reading your Bible responsibly. And um, we all need some practice on that. So um, it's eight weeks, Monday nights, uh, 7 to 9 p.m., there is tuition, because um, I need a job. <laughs> um, but please, like, if money's an issue, we'll figure out a way. We'll figure out a way. You can contact the church, um, and I, I hope that is, yeah, I hope you hear my heart there. But um, this is, uh, for those of you that feel like you're not sure if this is the topic, like an Old Testament theme study, just know that I will be covering larger literary techniques of how to read your Old Testament right on through into your New Testament, even as we focus in on a my new nerdy um, subject matter of like gold. And context for that, that's what I'm writing my thesis on. So this is um, practice. I'm gonna be teaching and then getting feedback from you guys on where the holes are so that I can write a better thesis. Um, so I'm also benefiting from that. Anyway, please join, it's so much fun. It's a ton of fun and it's only eight weeks and we, um, rather than the 14 week original one. So consider that, okay. Done, done advertising that. Let's just get onto the sermon. Welcome, welcome to Vancouver Vineyard Church. It's time to uh, explore. Um, well, we're actually in the middle of a series where we're exploring the identity of the church and we're reminding ourselves of who God has called the Vancouver Vineyard Church to be and what we feel like he's called us to do. Um, so here we go. Vancouver Vineyard is a church empowered by the spirit for a purpose, to practice and proclaim the kingdom of God for the renewal of our city. This is our goal. We want to see ordinary people's lives um, transformed as they come to know the love of God, to grow, and then to then share God's love with other people. And we want it, really, we want our people to flourish and then to see clearly Jesus reigning as king over all of that. And we believe that God is raising us up and sort of maturing us into this kind of people by solidifying beneath our feet a fourfold conviction of what we value, which we've arrived at over years through a great deal of prayer and long meetings. <laughs> the first is presence. If we're to be this spirit-empowered people, we believe we must value the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, delighting in communing with God as he communes with us and delights in that. 
And then the whole design of God's work is that it is done through relationships. Um, and this is community. This is why we place such a high value on gathering together consistently, um, because we believe that's part of how that happens. Next week, Marshall's going to close us out with mission, um, our, which is our last value. But today, I'm going to talk a little bit about formation. And so if we can just return to the original vision mission statement that I read at the beginning, I want to note two, th- three wor- two or three words of importance here. Um, to practice and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's, uh, for the purpose of practicing and proclaiming. So this is usually how mission statements go. Vision statements, they set this, they're usually lofty and lovely, and they're packed with really punchy words. Um, and statements like these paint these beautiful, overarching pictures which engage our imagination and then set us off on the right track. But when you get down to it, the question really does become more practical. What does it look like to practice and proclaim the kingdom of God? If you're churchy, you have an instant idea of this. Some of you are thinking of something right now. That's fine. Um, but it might be very different from your neighbor's idea um, who may not be as churchy as you. So it's worth camping out on for a minute. If, so he, if we think on this little line here to practice and proclaim the kingdom of God, we'll notice pretty quickly that there is an implication. There's an implication embedded within this vision. Uh, if God is calling us to be a people who practice and proclaim, yeah, some, whatever it is, the kingdom of God, we're practicing and proclaiming it. The real implication underneath that is we have a robust understanding of what it even is that we're practicing and proclaiming. This is not to be too quickly looked over. <laughs> That's why I made two clip art images for it. <laughs> so welcome, welcome to the world of formation. Are our minds and our hearts, our very bodies, swept up in the kingdom of God? Are we formed by it enough that we then can practice and proclaim it? Um, so as with all things, um, particularly the other three values of the church, presence, community, and mission, we must look to Jesus for this. Uh, the first four books of the New Testament, known as the Gospels, are the biographies of written of Jesus um, by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story of a man who was deeply formed and deeply interested in forming others. Jesus held a clear conviction about formation. So we are born into a world, um, into like a forming and influential world immediately. Everyone is. No one escapes this reality. We all experience it from the moment you draw your first breath. You're on a journey of being formed and shaped and raised up within a context. As humans, we create cultures uh, big and small. um, And those begin begin to form us um, through what James K.A. Smith calls cultural liturgies. So your family might have a cultural liturgy of how you spend the weekend, for example, and that's gonna form you as you grow up. And in America, we religiously participate in the cultural liturgy of shopping, for example. And through that liturgy, we've been formed into consumers, for example. You're formed by something at all times, whether you're aware of it or not, which presents us with a really complex portrait of humanity because you are a mysterious product of genetics and environment And I'm not going to pretend to know which plays the more significant role, but you're formed by these core memories, these habits you have right now, habits you're forming. You're formed by your diet, whether it be edible or digital. You're formed by the news, your friendships, your traumas, your dreams and hopes, and your religions. And all of those are working on you. Your formation is ongoing until your last breath. You are clay 
beneath a thousand hands of influence in your life. So one question for today is, are we aware of which hands are molding us? And then what does Jesus have to say about the molding process? Um, so let's proceed with the metaphor of clay. It's like a preacher's dream. It's so cliche. Um, but man, it is a good one. Get ready for the fruit it's going to yield. So the Bible opens up with the creation of the world, story of the creation of the world, where humanity right there is being formed out of the mud. Um, humans are molded and formed and made into what the Bible calls the image of God. Genesis gives us a theological portrait about the nature of humankind and the relationship to God. The story isn't trying to give you a highly scientific rendering of creation, but it's giving you a theological one. Human beings were formed and molded to reflect out the nature and character of God into the world in a unique way, totally distinct from all other parts of creation. This is true. We believe this is true. <clears throat> they were meant to bring order out of chaos and then through beautiful diversity, um, in Genesis 1 in particular, male and female, unify. From the diversity, they then unify. And in that unification, they multiply. And then by multiplying, they expand outward when this creative, abundant garden moves from the center out into the wilderness. That's the whole beginning. It begins with a picture of a potter forming humanity like a lump of clay. Um, so a couple years ago, for my wife's birthday, um, I got her a session with a friend of ours named Jess to try out our hand at throwing pottery. You throw it. Have you guys ever done this? So the experience was, the experience was formative, pun intended. For those of you that um, have never done this, there are a few crucial steps. The first is you have to play with a big ball of clay for a while, and you have to smooth over all of the cracks. You have to create, like a, as best you can, a perfect sphere. And then you throw it. <laughs> You throw it onto this wheel, the potter's wheel, and then using water, you've all seen Ghost, you start to really, really get in there. <laughs> and it's, it is a tactile experience. You really start to shape the piece of clay. So but before you make anything, though, here's what I want to talk about. Before you make anything, there's this threefold step, this process you do, that you have to do, or else it all falls apart. And it's called centering. And it's magical. So um, here's how it works. You, once you get the clay on, you never actually throw it into center. I learned this. No one ever hits it center. The second you start to step on the pedal and it starts to spin and you put your hands around it, you can feel where it's off center because it hits your hands like that. And, and all of a sudden, you're like really fighting this monster that's hitting your hand. And it's because it's, it's not center. So you have to... And you have to put your back into it, actually. You have to put your elbow on your knee and hold it down with your abs like this. I didn't realize it was so intense. Ghost is silly. It's not, like, fluid. It's like, that is, would not be happening while you're trying to make a piece of pottery. Okay, so anyway, you're, like, really holding it. And you're, like, fighting this thing. But if, if and when you finally get it into the center, it goes like this. And all of a sudden, you're, like, holding this, like, thing that's, like, growing. Then, once it's centered, you can build it up into this cone, and then you push it down, you squash it. You build it up, you push it down, and you squash it. And you have to do this for a while, like five minutes. You have to work it. And what the, the, the centering process, it's, what it's doing is it's smoothing out all of the particles of the clay, and it's making every single particle the same, uniform. They're pliable. And once they're pliable, you can make something beautiful out of it. So the point is, this, became su this experience became such a picture of humility for me. 
If the potter, in this case my wife in that picture, is to form the clay into something beautiful, she must bring it into the center where all the particles of the clay can then be made pliable and harmonious to her will. So if the clay is to learn the wisdom of the potter, <laughs> the clay must become humble and submit to the learning process. It cannot be so stiffly hell-bent on being its own shape, um, but it has to be willing to be molded and formed right in the center of the potter's will. I'm telling you, this is a crazy metaphor. It's just like, I don't even need to preach anymore. So formation, I think, is really about having the posture of a humble learner. I'm going to say this again. Formation, I think, is about having the posture of a humble learner and being willing to be molded. Let me read to you this verse from Proverbs. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And then the one who understands, let him obtain guidance. This verse is found at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, um, which is a book all about discovering wisdom. Now, wisdom, as most of you know, even at an intuitive level, is different from knowledge alone. One can know that fire burns and then unwisely touch it anyway. It's like every teenager in America, right? But the wise man has connected the knowledge to his will and his body, and his behavior is a manifestation of that holistic sort of experiential knowing. He flourishes because knowledge is put then into practice. So the Bible teaches that if we're being formed by God's wisdom, it must be this holistic experience. We're complex creatures, your body, mind, heart, all of it. And if we split these things up, we become compartmentalized and then fragmented creatures rather than integrated holistic ones that we are meant to be. And our culture is what some modern pastoral theologians call a disembodied culture. Maybe you've heard this term. That is, our culture likes to split the human experience up into these ranking values, these competing values, where we overemphasize parts of ourselves more than the rest. So you might go to a certain school and then be made to believe that you're like this intellectual think tank, primarily. You're a brain on a stick. Or in the city, you are a sexuality or a sexual orientation, primarily. Or you are a body, primarily, and so you become this physique-obsessed influencer. Or you're a consumer and a spender, and so you are a money-making mogul, primarily. Or you're a specific gender identity or a diet-obsessed personality. And in all of these things, we learn to say, our culture teaches us to say, my identity is fill in the blank. Because we learn to prioritize one piece, and then we plug it in to the blank. And then we put it above everything else. Um, but you are then at war with yourself. Our culture is one that thinks in terms of categories like my truest and most authentic self is fill in the blank. And then depending on which one you think is important, that's how you fill it in. So if you answer that question or if you're used to answering that question, that just shows we're formed by this culture we live in because it implies that we're fragmented. <laughs> it implies that we're these messy scrap piles of bits and pieces and we just need to sort through and find the bit that we like the most and then elevate it, totally ignorant of the consequence it might have on the other parts of ourselves. Thus, the most health-conscious workout guru might be just totally ignorant of the way they treat people and have no emotional maturity. But in their minds, they're just a picture of health. Or someone who is very much in touch with inner thoughts and feelings or their sexual preferences, whatever, might consider themselves very healthy or awakened, but it comes at the expense of their physical body, which has become unhealthy or Perhaps they leave a wake of broken relationships in their past. 
Church leaders and spiritual gurus, they tap into like emotional intelligence or even spiritual insight, but then they neglect physical or financial boundaries, and then they lead others to ruin. Or maybe it's disembodied in another way. Maybe we're just really living virtual lives and we never put bare feet on real grass. The Bible, though, it just, man, it casts vision for a flourishing human, a human that is so formed and shaped by the image of God. So it talks about this in all sorts of ways, but one of them is the way of wisdom, which is integrating all of these things underneath God's will. So um, formation, then, it's humble submission. It's humble learning where our character and our bodies and our minds and our hearts, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we parent or enter into relationships or the decisions we make sexually or whatever, none of it's done passively. Rather, we is, it's, done, uh, uh, or it's not done just simply because we could or we can. Rather, we recognize that we are instead made for flourishing and so we're meant to, for all that to be molded, for it to be centered, um, shaped by God's wisdom in his way. So there's another way to talk about God's wisdom and God's way. <laughs> what we're talking about is what does it look like when God has authority over his creation to mold it? When God is in charge and things are centered and his will and his way of being in the world are enacted through his people, we call this the reign or the kingdom of God. When his wisdom is everywhere and when all things are molded and formed according to the design and the decree of the king. This is the ministry of Jesus I mentioned earlier. He was the embodiment of being formed by God's rule or his wisdom and therefore took that rule and wisdom in word and deed. It's this natural outflow. So a clear implication of this proverb that we started with then, not to mention the rest of the Bible, is that a, I think a clear marker of the man or woman who is being formed into the image of God is that he or she is a humble learner. This, to me, is ground zero for formation. If you want to become a well-formed person, you have to be willing to humbly present yourself. Like clay, surrendered into the hands of the best potter. Um, we're going to return to this in a minute and talk about what this looks like for us, but I just want to ask us all, myself included, this question this morning, which will guide us for the remainder of our time. Are we, the Vancouver Vineyard Church, marked by this characteristic of just being made up of humble learners. I'm gonna talk about Vincent Van Gogh again. <laughs> My wife and I are still on this impressionist kick. We've yet, we've yet to get over it. Um, this is arguably Van Gogh's most famous painting. Yeah? Starry Night. It's on the back of cell phone covers and might be on your wall. Now, what's most striking about this picture is, of course, the starry night, the night sky. You also have this um, dark cypress on the left side, um, which adds balance to the weight you feel from that really intense yellow moon, the right? Um, now, it's, this painting is beautiful. It's worth looking at for all of these reasons. It's famous for a reason. But beyond noticing what I just mentioned to you, um, most people just sort of move on from the painting after a minute or so. That's fine. This morning, though, I really want to point something out. Um, and I'm sure many of you know this, so sorry if this isn't as cool, but I only learned about this recently, and it rock my world. If you look in the middle of the painting, um, you'll see a building with an immediately recognizable shape. See that church? Okay, now what's unique about the church, and painfully obvious, actually, in the context of this painting, is that it has, it has been placed centrally in the canvas, and it's meant to draw the eye, but it is the one building in town without any light on. 
There's no light coming out of that building. And art experts agree this is a very intentional on Van Gogh's part. In this season of his life, when this emerged, Van Gogh had experienced enough pain and judgment that he intentionally kept the church dark and cold, the last place you'd find warmth and light. Van Gogh, man, he was a tragic figure for more than one reason, but one of the tragedies is that he became disillusioned by the church. Up to the end, he had a complex relationship with his faith, um, from what we understand, and he did seem to have hope in God in some capacity, but his relationship with the church and his upbringing in her was rocky. So this morning, I want to hold up Starry Night as a picture of our world, at least the part of the world where we live in. And certainly, if we're talking about my generation and younger, we can expand beyond our region. Ask your average Pacific Northwestern college student, ask one of my college students, or ask an office worker or a dog walker or who isn't plugged into your church what they think of when they think about Christians in the American church. Or better yet, if they were artists, how would they paint the church? Um, you see, as Christians, we have these two categories. We have the church, we have the lost. And to be sure, those categories are biblical, so I'm not going to question their, their authority. I will question, though, our stewardship of them. Because if we're not wise, we can be a little cartoony and a little removed from reality in the way that we use them. If we're not careful, we form caricatures of the lost, and we strip them of all dignity. They're lost. What they value, what they appreciate, what they see, it's all part of the world. But I read my Bible, and I know better. But this morning, we're talking about formation. And that, to me, sounds like a lump of clay that's as hard as a rock and borderline unworkable. See, Starry Night is, at the end of the day, you guys, it is so aware of beauty and wonder. In fact, I think Van Gogh thought much more highly of the night sky than most of you. He's so aware of beauty and wonder that I think sometimes as Christians, we're just so afraid to believe that a non-Christian, merely by their intrinsic nature, as a creature made in the image of God, is even capable of noticing and rendering such beauty and goodness. Out of fear that we might somehow become defiled or tainted or dulled or something, we put all of them in that camp over there. We call it the lost. And then we stay in our camp here, the church, waiting for one thing and one thing only, to convert them, to make them look like us. Um, but we're, we're not looking at the artwork of a caricature, some cold-hearted, deconstructed atheist lost in sin and rebellion and totally depraved. We're looking at the work of a man who is brilliant but so broken. And it's gut-wrenching. And maybe the Bible would place him in the category of lost, I'm willing to consider that, but what does that even mean? Lost like the damned or lost like a little sheep? And you know what Jesus does with lost little sheep. And so I think in Van Gogh, we see a man whose heart and mind and soul is actually awake and inspired to the beauty of God's world, but who is just desperate for warmth and love and cannot seem to find it. I asked a friend of mine who left the church years ago to talk to me about her experience it, while I was researching for this sermon. I just asked her if, if there was resonance in her mind between Christians being humble learners. And I thought I knew exactly what her answer would be. I was anticipating it. Um, but she was even more thoughtful about it. And so I 
took the time to put some of her response into a slide. I just want to read to you what she said. Humility and humble learning were often encouraged in the church in relationship to God, the Bible, the pastor, and sometimes other Christians, but not in relationship to anyone else. In other words, there was a strong, we are right, everyone else is wrong mentality, even with other denominations of Christianity. We could learn within the framework of our solidified denominational beliefs, but man, attempting to learn from others was met with warnings that we might be misled. Now, my friend and I have a great relationship. Out of love, we're honest about those places where we disagree a bit, usually on truth and holding that conviction. So hear me correctly, I'm not pushing for some sort of moral or theological relativism where we just appeal to everything at all times. But she's tapping into something that is well worth our time, I think. Because we all know that she's talk- what she's talking about. And to be clear, her thoughts on the matter were grace-filled. And tame, I think. <laughs> talk to some of my college students. Or some of you have coworkers or family members who have a, like really strong feelings. And so it just benefits us, I think, to be curious and honest about the attitudes we're capable of having within these four walls. And unfortunately, man, you guys, this is just part of our inheritance as Christians in America. We've inherited a lot of good things, but we can feign humility, but only to the stuff we want to hear, depending on our local doctrines or political ideologies or whatever. And we can feign formation, but only if we're curating the formation process to be exactly to our liking. And so, okay, that's my hot take, hot take for the church this morning. Let me, let's move on. I want to be clear. I am beyond proud of this community, to be part of it. I truly believe that it is like authentic and humble. And most of you along with me, man, we've just like seen the magic in here. We've seen the wonder. We've seen the beauty and the glory of the church functioning so well, thank God. And if we were to paint Starry Night, it'd be terrible because most of us don't know how to paint anything. But if we were given those paintbrushes, you better believe the churches in our rendering would be bright so yellow and warm. Praise God. But I return to my question. Will our church, is our church, and will it continue to be marked by the characteristic of being humble learners? If we truly value formation, will we be the kind of soft people who are soft enough to be centered and then molded into the image of a savior who has a big, mushy heart to hear the stories of others? Will the Van Goghs out there right now continue to paint their own versions of Starry Night with darkened stained glass windows because there's no warmth for them to be found inside? Or will they be drawn to the candles of Jesus' love and hope? So the good news is God is forming us. He's purifying us. And I think I know the answer to the question. He's shaping us and molding us according to his image. And man, you guys, his image is so beautiful. I believe Jesus, without compromising his passion for the church and bringing light into darkness, would have sat down and delighted with Vincent Van Gogh. Beyond an agenda to convert Van Gogh, I do think Jesus would have found a friend in this struggling artist. And no doubt Van Gogh would have been the one astounded and delighted to discover in Jesus an even bigger nerd who could talk about color combinations and perspective than even he could. I think Jesus, the great artist, has time for stuff like that. He would have been unbothered by Van Gogh's dirtiness and his less than savory vocabulary. I don't think Jesus would have rushed him into a volunteer position at his church. I think he would have had a meal with him. 
And I think Jesus would have taken an interest in Van Gogh because I think Jesus was a humble learner, not at the expense of truth, but because he was formed by God's wisdom. So let's just return for a second to the pages of scripture as we kind of um, work towards the end here and just look at the vision set forth in the New Testament for what Christians and leaders in the early church were supposed to look like. Um, okay, so Paul writing to Timothy offers his own wisdom on what char- characteristics should mark church leaders. And so this is in context, this is for church leaders, but wider context, it's for all believers. You ready? First Timothy 3.9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is a great pithy little line brought to my attention recently. Some translations actually say hold the truth. Started digging. NIV, I think, says truth. Some NIV translations. But man, that's fine. But it actually isn't the word. (laughs) In Greek, it's mysterion, which is what it sounds like. Mystery. In other words, there are mysteries to this thing we call faith. And we must have a clear conscience about them. What does that mean? Well, it means that you must, we must learn to be at peace and move forward well when we can't actually answer every question. And we can't, we, we, we have to learn to hold things in tension, always humble to learn more in light of the fact that we don't actually have all the answers in the present. This is, a, this is like a, a disposition issue. And you'll know you have a community marked by formation, truly being formed by Jesus, because they'll never be too prideful to move beyond holding mystery. People who are like pliable clay in the hands of the potter will never seek to answer everything. If we hold a conviction that there's mystery to this thing, to this faith, then we'll never be too good to discover where God has buried his truth and his goodness out there in people's stories. And we'll never be too good to be a warm enough community that continues to make up, be made up of, its, of diverse characters, people. Oh man, I want to read a rad quote from a Christian astrophysicist named David Wilkinson. Listen to this. So he's an astrophysicist by day. Here's what he says. I was trained a physicist, and physicists are very arrogant. (laughs) I used to believe that physics was the only proper science in the universe. Chemistry was for people who couldn't do physics. (laughs) Biology was for people who couldn't do chemistry. And I won't even tell you what I thought of sociology. But now, I laugh, but like I have no idea to do any of those things. So I'm just, but now I have repented, he says. Because the thing is, when atoms get together in a relationship, something new emerges which only chemistry can study. And when molecules get together into living cells, something new appears which only biology can study. And when living humans get together in complex relationships, new things appear which only sociology can study. And part of, the, part of that is in relationship, there's always creativity. In new patterns of relationship, there's creativity rather than decay. There's an inkling of that within scripture, he says. When you reconcile relationships, when communities become fully human, they become not destructive, but creative. Ooh. Wilkinson, speaking as a physicist, I think, represents a lot of, in a lot of ways Christians speaking as Christians. Our temptation is to sort of like narrow our view in our vocabulary, in our paradigms, until they're so entirely customized that we no longer have like a humble spirit and eyes to see where God is igniting curiosity in the kingdom in ways that maybe confuse us. 
is drawing all of creation to himself, the Bible says. That has to be a complex and mysterious endeavor. God's spirit is always on the move. He's always opening up boxes everywhere and shining light in all sorts of different ways we didn't expect. In the words of Eleanor Mumford, he's making mischief everywhere he goes because he's at the head of this enormous project called redemption. And as Christians, we get front row seats, actually, if we keep our hearts humble and submit to the process of ongoing formation according to his wisdom rather than ours. The Bible sings this song of the humble follower of Jesus making an effort to remain nimble and flexible and sensitive, open, filled with joy, no fear. Look at this verse in James. Man, the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, open to reason. This implies a heart with like soft clay, doesn't it? Always willing to say, oh, maybe I had that wrong. Maybe I could learn a little something from you right now. Second Timothy, Paul took this view of his scriptures. To Timothy, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Look, Timothy, I know you know the stuff. I know you've read your Bible. I know you've been a leader in your community. But here's the thing. You got to go back and keep doing it. Because all that stuff in the scriptures specifically, they're making you wise for being saved by Jesus every day, all the time. (laughs) So Timothy and Paul, you and I, we're, also, we're called kings and queens in this world, according to Genesis 1, which means we're being formed by God to internalize his wisdom. So as hard as this is to embody sometimes, I truly believe that Christ, to the Christian belongs the ability to have the non-anxious free spirit. Christians ought to have conversations where they set down their agendas and doctrines and theologies and political ideologies and learn to hear from people without a panic of pollution or corruption. Because if we're seeking God, his true wisdom will show us what to avoid and when to avoid it. And when we avoid such things, it'll be with peace, with joy, unbothered and resolved. We'll say no thanks when true evil emerges. But I think we mistake fear for wisdom too often because we've been formed by a culture that actually wants to lump us into these territorial camps and then camps of pseudo-righteousness and then pit those camps against each other in these wars of slander and gossip. And we fall prey to that behavior. But that's not to be our culture in here. We're meant to be centered, pliable, relaxed, peaceful, joyful. We are open to reason, yet we hold mystery with conviction. Our church has the lights on, not because we're conforming to this world, but because we're being formed by the wise potter. And when we look at him, we see a ton of light. So practically speaking, how do we just avail ourselves to God's forming enterprise? First of all, this is what we're meant to figure out together. Contextually, God has this unique unique things for the Vancouver Vineyard Church that he has for no one else. And it's our joy to seek him out and discover those kingdom things specific to our region and then to ask him to put them in our hearts and then to form us into the kinds of people who can practice and proclaim them. And we will discover without a doubt infinite diversity and expression of what formation looks like. And that's mysterious. 
But also, in the spirit of these last verses we looked at, and in light of my previous word about the things which form us, namely the things we sort of expose ourselves to and consume, formation is about submission to the things we know at a bare minimum (laughs) to be of God. That is, Scripture and His people gathering together, seeking Him in prayer, to name a few. These are healthy, broad, baseline foundations of formation, and we must get better at exposing ourselves to them. When we say we value presence in prayer, it's because we believe we have to be humble learners in submission to God's spirit. So God has led our community into a high value of prayer because there we are drawn close to his heart. And, then when, and when we pray, we're implicitly articulating humility the whole time. We're saying, hey, we don't know everything and we don't know what direction we ought to go. So maybe you could show us and lead us. And anywhere your spirit doesn't go, we don't want to go there. So we want to be humble We want to learn from his spirit and then pay attention. So we show up to be guided by him. And then when we talk about life groups or we meet together for dinner or whatever, we watch each other's kids, an infinite amount of expressions this take place, or we just, we serve or we just show up. It's because we believe that we're all better if we let each other in the body of Christ form us, shape us, and not just be left to being formed by our iPhones. And we recognize that our minds are very important for formation. So we read and we study the Bible and we read and we study others who have studied the Bible. Or we do Wednesday Bible classes or we do a silly class on gold. Because we recognize that that which we take into our minds and it shapes and it forms our thoughts. And in time, because we're holistic creatures, that forms our hearts. And in light of Van Gogh, here we go. In light of Van Gogh and this personal, personal, I admit, passion, I have to see Christians released fiercely into their creative potential for the glory of God's name. I think formation is not merely the churchy stuff. Philippians, watch this. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, go ahead and just think on those things. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible because Paul, too, thinks that there's beauty in the night sky worthy of some impressionist paint. And like David Wilkinson said, a community of humble learners spontaneously, it just, it combusts and transforms into this flourishing community of creativity with eyes to see God's goodness breaking in everywhere. Their radar is just like lit up. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Dude, what a beautiful task for the church. What a glorious vision. What if Van Gogh, who saw the majesty of a cypress tree, had been welcomed at the doors of a church, flung wide open in hospitality with another Christian who said, dude, the cypress tree, I know. Isn't God amazing? What else are you drawn to that God's put in there? What if he had been joined by followers of Jesus in this exploration of God's goodness, which permeates the world? Wilkinson, as a Christian astrophysicist, speaking specifically about his God-given interest in the universe, says this last quote by him. Our human intellect should not constrain God. God can do whatever he'd like. And the only way I'm to find out about what God has done is to look at the universe, to explore it. I think it's a Christian responsibility to explore the universe God has given. Love it. (laughs) So if you're new to this community, or even if you aren't, 
We want you to know that we are a church that longs to be pliable and humble because we believe strongly that we're not done growing. We value formation because there's room for us yet to still look more like Jesus. His wisdom, it permeates all of life and it integrates those different parts of our experience under the sun. And so we recognize that this is a rigorous, holistic experience. To follow him in this way into flourishing, it's our whole lives. You're all welcome here to embark on this journey with us as we try to submit to this process of being centered in the hands of God <laughs> and then made pliable in those loving hands. Um, if you guys want to stand with me, I'm just, I want to close with one final word. And um, Doug, I want to invite Doug forward for ministry time here. In just a minute, we're going to spend just a couple minutes just kind of waiting on God and hearing from the Holy Spirit. And um, here's what I want to say. Whether you're new or not, if you're someone who is wondering if that thing inside of you, whatever it is, you, you, whatever it is, you wonder if God put it there. You're not sure, but there's something about that thing inside of you, that desire, that passion. Um, there's something about it. And... Um, it seems to continually egg you on towards the true and the good and the beautiful, the noble and the right and the pure and the lovely. If you, like Van Gogh, you have eyes to see the glory up there in the sky and you're wondering if there's a place for you here, um, I just want to say we're humble learners and we'd love to hear all about it. Um, and we'd love to, to join you and then welcome you in. And so won't you all now and me, let's come alongside each other as we continue to be molded by the potter, King Jesus, as we continue in this ongoing process of formation.